Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... This episode of the Children's Book Podcast is sponsored by 12 by 12. Picture book authors need to be fairly prolific to be published. That's why members of 12 by 12 aim to write one picture book draft a month. Through an online forum, monthly webinars, a private Facebook group, and more, members enjoy the accountability, support, and motivation of a fantastic community of authors and illustrators. Visit 12by12challenge.com slash membership for more information. I use the phrase once upon a time in the book for two reasons, and I think I repeat it maybe three or four times uh, in in the text. I use it because the topic is a tough topic, but yet... Children are familiar with the phrase once upon a time from fairy tales. So I want to provide them with some, you know, some familiar territory on which to stand because they don't, may not know about Oklahoma. They don't know about the, uh, the, the race massacre, but they know about once upon a time because of fairy tales. But it also implies that this, the, the, the history that I, the story that I'm telling or the, the, the time period and the place, the scene, the setting that I'm that I'm describing is vanished in some way. Well, it, it's no longer what it was then. And so that then foreshadows the, the massacre that is to come uh, in the later part of the book. So I spend the first part of the book um, by re- to, to recreate Greenwood as as it existed before the massacre, the wealthiest black community in the whole nation. Uh, So that was, you know, kind of like forensic work if I were, you know, a detective. And then the second part of the, the the, the second, the, the final third of the book is rehashing the crime that took place in Green, in Greenwood. So the once upon a time and then boom, you know, it all changed because of this massacre. This is the Children's Book Podcast, episode number 674. I'm your host, Matthew Winner. Today, with a full and grateful heart, I'm welcoming back to the podcast Carol Boston Weatherford, author of Unspeakable, The Tulsa Race Massacre, illustrated by Floyd Cooper. May 31st, 2021 marks the 100th anniversary of the start of the Tulsa Race Massacre, a horrific event that devastated the wealthiest African-American community in the entire nation. What provoked the event, 
beyond that elevator ride where Dick Rowland, an African-American teen, either stumbled or stepped on the foot of Sarah Page, a young white elevator operator in a downtown office building, resulting in Rowland being jailed on assault charges. What provoked the event was black advancement. As Carol reminds us in this interview, black advancement is the single greatest threat to white supremacy. This is an episode I cannot wait for you to hear. Please welcome my guest, Carol Boston Weatherford, author of Unspeakable, The Tulsa Race Massacre. Hi, I'm Carol Boston Weatherford. I am the author of more than 50 books. My pronouns are she and hers, and I am a native of Baltimore, Maryland. I live in North Carolina now and teach at Fayetteville State University in in North Carolina. Yeah, Baltimore natives. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Keeping it local. Shout out for that. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. I'm so glad, Carol, that we've had the chance to connect again. I um, as I said, off recording, have admired your work for a good long time. I, I think I read nearly everything that you publish now. And it's it's so wonderful to see. I mean, I, I quite frankly, I admire you as a poet. You're one of a small handful of people that I just I look to as a mentor and how to use language to communicate and use use that poetic form to communicate. And so um, I see that throughout Unspeakable and other works that, that you've had. You were you were uh, got more accolades this year for um, for uh, your your book box that um, was recognized all through the the Youth Media Awards. And I know that um, that how can I say this the best way that doesn't make you blush too much? You're you're no stranger to accolades of your work. Your work is highly no, loved. In fact, <laughs> in fact, um, my book R E S P E C T, the um, yes. Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul, won a Coretta Scott King Award for illustration, and I, you know I've had several books win win that award for illustration and uh, Caldecott honors. And Frank Morris, and when I called, when I contacted Frank to congratulate him, he said. You're the common denominator. I said, <laughs> I said that's gonna, I said if I ever if I ever start rapping, that's going to be my name, the common denominator. <laughs> that's the greatest name. That's right. All the illustrators are looking to work with you because they know what it leads to. Oh, yeah. Frank is wonderful. Frank Frank and his wife were on the the show a couple of months back, and they he um yeah to have work with. And this is not your first time working with Frank either, but um no. Ah, good stuff. And now with this book, with the book that's bringing us together today, Unspeakable, the Tulsa Race Massacre, you work with Floyd Cooper. His art is, as ever, but his art is stunning on this book. Right. I think this book is is his masterpiece. Not to, you know, not to throw shade on any of his other work, especially since uh, we, he and I have worked together before. Uh, We worked together um, on my... uh, 2008 book becoming billy holiday which um which ought to be having a revival right about now because of the movie united states versus billy holiday yeah uh, yeah so we, that was our first time working together and when uh i began to draft this manuscript 
I sent Floyd a very early version of it to ask him if he might be interested in collaborating because I had had read that he was a Tulsa native. And of course, he said yes. And, uh, you know, it's just his work is just a masterpiece in in this book from the cover, you know, to the fly leaves, everything. It's just a masterpiece. It's outstanding. I love as well. You know, I I love helping children to study books in as a vessel of of art and of story and in this book not only is it stunning to look at the people's faces and how beautifully he brings uh history and real people to the forefront but also my word those end papers to start with his illustration of main street and end with historical photos of 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 you know the of the result of the aftermath is the word i was looking for of of um of this um, horrible event in history is just there's so much care and so much thought put into it and it also feels that the both of you are making this with that sense of urgency we know that this was a hundred years ago that it happened but yet we've only been reconciling with it or mainstream media has only been uh, reconciling with it for really the past 25 years or, or less. Right, exactly. And and, and Floyd's artwork is so um, cinematic, which is, yes. you know, another reason that I um, contacted him because there were no, uh, there were no moving pictures that, that captured this. I think maybe there was one, you know, one small clip of some airplanes um, and the, you know, in the aftermath, but, you know, really, there there are a few there are a few you know snapshots, but there's not a lot of documentation of of pictorial documentation of of the event, and so I think that his both of us envision this as approach this as a, as a testament, uh, a testament to the of the to the people who perished and also to those who survived the massacre among them his grandfather, his grandfather. Um, I had no idea yes. I had no idea until after I read uh, the illustrator's note that Floyd's grandfather had was a survivor of the massacre he was a teenager at the time and uh, if I, I I'm, I'm trusting my memory now but I think Floyd said that his grandfather was working for a white man somewhere in town in Tulsa and the man told him that this you know, upright, up, this unrest had, you know, had begun. And he told, either gave him a bicycle or told him to get on his bicycle and, and go, you know, get, get away from danger. And so that's what his grandfather did. I don't know where he went, but he survived. So Floyd, you know, Floyd could be here to work on this project with me. Yeah. Would you mind, so. can we back up just a little bit? Um, because I don't know how much I, I, I know for sure as a teacher, um, and as a as a person who used to be a kid, that um, I only maybe in the past five years heard of the Tulsa massacre, and I believe actually the first time I heard it was uh, named the Tulsa riot, which I'm grateful it has been um, clarified that this is indeed a massacre. That even the language we we choose to describe events or memorialize events can have an influence on on I think the the weight of or or um 
I don't know, the impact of the event in our memory. So no, definitely. Uh, would you mind, please, just giving a, a, a brief summary of... A brief history. Yeah, okay. a brief history. I will. Okay, so um, African-Americans, um, this, is, this was during the Great Migration. So African-Americans were moving from the South, um, you know, where in some states it, it was majority black, to other parts of the country to flee uh, hate violence and seeking better opportunities. They, they moved, you know, for the, for the same economic reasons that other, others moved during the Great Migration. And, and so many of those people arrived in Tulsa. Some had even, had even moved there in the, uh, ap- after the Reconstruction era. Um, they were called exodusters. So there, were, there was a black community in Tulsa. And as, uh, after the oil boom uh, struck in Tulsa, uh, black people as well as white people were the beneficiaries of that, not just the people who were the, you know, who were um, involved in getting the oil out of the ground, but, you know, in, in other auxiliary types of, of businesses, you know, service, service businesses, um, you know, even working as domestics, you know, they, they worked as domestics for some of the, the, the families who had become wealthy as a result of the oil boom and uh, an African-American uh, community called Greenwood began to thrive. And this business, this, this community had uh, more than 200 businesses, uh, 20 some churches, had a, a separate school system, um, had um, a library, hospital, um, the most luxurious black hotel in the entire nation, uh, 15, I think, black doctors. And this to, to show you how wealthy the, this 35 square block community was, there were six privately owned airplanes. And this is in 1921. Most people, most Americans in 1921 didn't even have a car, let alone an airplane. Mm. So, you know, it was a thrive. It was the wealthiest African-American community in the entire nation. And then on in May, uh, on May 30th, 1921, a black shoe shiner either stumbled or stepped on the foot of, nobody really knows, of a white teenage uh, elevator operator. The shoe shiner was 19 and the elevator operator, I think, was 15 or 16. And apparently she screamed. And the next day, this this shoe shine man was jailed. Uh, Whites, uh, the the newspaper ran a story uh, that provoked people with the, with the headline nab the negro and so a white mob began to gather at the jail uh black residents came to the courthouse to protect this man from from the lynch mob an altercation ensued uh that, that left i think two white people and ten, and 10 black people dead left 12 people dead later well, the next day, rumor, rumors had circulated that blacks planned to attack the white community. And that rumor provoked whites to uh, then attack, attack the black community instead. World War I veterans uh, in, that com- in, in the Greenwood community uh, wanted, tried to defend their community. They were armed and they tried to defend their community, but they were outnumbered and outgunned. And within the next 36 hours, about 300 people uh, were killed 
and 8,000 people were left homeless. Black residents, uh, you know, had nothing to go home to. And in fact, they had to have, they had, there was a, like a camp outside of, out, outside of the city where the, the uh, National Guard that was supposed to be protecting this community um, had, had black people going. And they had to return to the city, they had to show passes. So some, you know, some left and never returned. Uh, but the devastation was just, it was, it was horrible. Um, if you, if you think of it in modern day terms, the, the devastation was the equivalent of $200 million in economic losses. And that is the kind of, that's the kind of number that you would see for hurricane damage for like one, for one hurricane, not just in one state, but when up and down the coast, like maybe up and down the East coast for a storm in the 1950s and 1960s. So that tells you the kind of devastation uh, that this, that the massacre uh, left in its wake. So the uh, public officials, local officials, swept the incident under the rug, and there it sat until 1996 when uh, the state appointed a commission to investigate the, what was then called the race, uh, race riot. And the invest after the investigation, the uh, it it became clear, uh, the report made made clear that it was not a riot but a massacre, and that's when the terminology changed from riot to massacre. Now, this was not the only such massacre, but it was the the largest. It was it was probably the most um, devastating of the uh, race massacres of that period. So it was not the only, you know, it was not the only city where something like this occurred. But it, but the the violence uh, was uh, more, you know, more far-reaching in terms of the number of people killed and and property damage. So yeah, and I think that that's important to emphasize that this was not an anomaly. This was something happening across the nation, right? In dozens of dozens of cities and small towns, you know, Chicago, you know, East St. Louis, Atlanta. Uh, you know, Rosewood in Florida, Wilmington, North Carolina. I mean, the list goes on and yeah. on. And all yes. with often these common threads of uh, a white woman or a white person communicating or, 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 or saying, lying in a lot of cases, um, that whatever altercation they had with a black person was exactly something exactly. That, that we that we know that black men knew not to go anywhere near white women because they were dangerous because stuff like this happened. So right, it makes right. it looking back through history with that understanding even more ridiculous to think, why did people believe it? But they believed it because that's what they wanted to believe. Right. And they, and they knew that that was the one thing they could use, you know, preserving white womanhood that would provoke provoke the kind of violence that they desired to erase any any sign of black advancement. Black advancement is the greatest threat to white supremacy, the greatest threat to white supremacy. So that's why you saw a rise in white supremacy when you have a black man in the White House, a black president. I mean, you know, what other, I mean, what you know, greater sign of black advancement can you can you have? You know, that it, greater symbol of black advancement than a black president. And then you see this rise 
and white supremacy that then, you know, crescendoed on January 6th at the Capitol. Yes. So, you know, so that's, we, it doesn't take a lot to, to unravel it, to figure it out. But, you know, often those incidents back in, you know, during the Jim Crow era were swept under the rug because, you know, they didn't value black lives, first of all. You know, black people were the, were the victims. White people were the, were the perpetrators. And in fact, the criminals that, you know, caused, caused the violence and they didn't, you know, they didn't see any need to document it. They just wanted to, you know, to put fear in, in the hearts and minds of black people so they would leave, you know, leave their positions of power, leave the businesses that they started, leave the homes that they had bought and, and, and stay in, quote unquote, stay in their place, which was, you know, that, that inferior place that white supremacy, you know, carved out for black people at the time. Yeah, I think that I remember visiting Tulsa a number of years ago. I was I, I went out to speak at some library event, um, and I remember the train tracks, and I remember hearing of Greenwood, and I remember uh, learning of Black Wall Street, and how I feel like I still to this day I think about how like we always talk about quote unquote the other side of the tracks, which is like this this language that we use to mean. Like this is this is a poverty stricken place or this is a whatever, um, a lesser place. But to know here that it was the other side of the tracks that was felt so threatening to those white people that there was this, there were businesses booming and 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 commerce happening that, like, as you said, wasn't happening anywhere else in the country on this scale and how those white people just couldn't take it. And not only could they not take it, they couldn't talk about it for 75 years and they couldn't even afterward allow black people back into that space that was destroyed. You're not even going to uh, allow people to attempt to rebuild. Uh, you're just going to, you know, force out and then force to stay out. Right, because this, you know, this notion of carrying passes sounds like martial law, doesn't it's it? It absolutely feels like that to me. I actually didn't yeah. know that was a part of um, this history, just a, a small detail that I wasn't aware of. And I was so grateful that, that you lean into that moment in this book, just that after all of this happened, still you had a pass, you have to have a pass to even get back in. Yeah, and that, you know, that's, again, that's a, that's, something that was done, used in slavery times, you know, free blacks had to have papers to prove that they were free. And enslaved blacks had to have, had to, you know, carry papers to show that, you know, wherever they were going, if they were off the plant, away from the, the property of the, uh, that belonged to the person who owned them, that they were in fact allowed to go wherever they were, you know, said they were going. So, you know, that's definitely, uh, you know, hold over that notion of carrying papers. I mean, that was, and that was something that was done in South, in apartheid South Africa too. Blacks, black people had to have papers to to travel to go from place to place. Yeah. So, yeah, and you know, it, all of us are. Um, you mentioned, you know, when you heard about the massacre. I never heard about the massacre. This massacre when I was growing up. I don't think I heard of any of any of the race massacres. Maybe no. East St. Louis, if if any. Okay. But I don't. I really don't remember learning about any of this in school. And that's often the case, you know, for the sub with the subjects that I write about. And that's one reason that I write about these subjects because they are 
uh, you know, fading traditions, forgotten struggles or family stories that, you know, I think should be shared. Uh, so, you know, I, I um, get caught up in these topics, uh, at these subjects, and then I, I'm learning about them in the process of doing my, re- my research and wanna sh- then want to share what I've learned with young people through, through the books that I have, have published. I'm grateful. For you. So it's very, yeah. uh, you know, it's very, imp- very important to me. And, and I, I really appreciate that Learner, um, yeah. Learner Publishing took a risk on, uh, on this topic because it's not, you know, it's not the kind of, you know, topic that grandma's going to go to a bookstore and say, oh yeah, I need to get my grandbaby a book about the race massacre. Yeah. And no. it says right on the cover. No. So again, good for them for doing this. But it says right on the cover, the Tulsa Race Massacre, which right. for children that may or may not have used that word before, because again, I don't know how uh, forward we are with our language of do we talk about, uh, certainly massacre is is no stranger in history, in our country's history, in the world's history that you learn in fourth grade, fifth grade, or that you talk in context through younger than that, to have a book that um, in no uncertain terms addresses it in that way, I think forces us to to confront and to understand. I mean, in this book, you've got um, one of my, uh, I think one of the m- most striking illustrations, they're all powerful, but one of the most striking illustrations that, that Floyd has done is of the white man holding a, a rifle in the background and the black man holding his hat up and arms up. The 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 image that um, mirrors that of the statue of the humiliation statue uh, in the Tulsa Park. Um, uh, to have a book where there's a gun being pointed at a picture book where there's a gun being pointed at the back of a man, I think is is an important and powerful yeah. uh, image to put in front of children. And with the you know with the hand with the hands up, I mean you know because that's that uh, you know don't uh, hands up don't shoot you know has become yeah. you know a mantra of of the Black Lives Matter movement, and here we have a picture you know connecting this event with it from 1921 this this 1921 massacre with things the, the police brutality that is still going on today. And that, you know, that's another reason that I write what I write to show that, you know, the freedom struggle is ongoing and the reason for the, the, the freedom struggle, the reasons behind the freedom struggle are persist, have, you know, have persisted, you know, for hundreds of years. And, and, you know, this massacre is no different from, you know, the kind of, uh, from, from, it's no different from January 6th. Except they weren't come, they weren't going for black people on January sixth necessarily. Right. I, so, I, you know, it's the same. It's it's all cut from the same. It's cloth. all cut from the same. The, you know, yeah. the white, the same white sheets. <laughs> How beautiful! I love that. <laughs> I love that. I also wrote down because this is going to be a phrase that stays on my heart and on my tongue. That you said, black advancement is the greatest threat to white supremacy. I'm grateful for that language. And I think that for educators, for grownups to use that language with children so that children also can adopt that language is so powerful. I also wanted to note, um, speaking on that illustration that I mentioned of the black man with his hands up, I'm going to read a part of the text and then I want to talk about how that illustration communicates beautifully to the illustration on the following page. Uh, The text reads, 
The police did nothing to protect the black community. When the National Guard arrived the next day, all that was left to do was put out fires and move thousands of black residents into camps outside of Tulsa. As their community lay in ruins, black residents had to carry passes to enter the city. Then it continues, in the days and weeks that followed, some black Tulsans left and never returned. Others stayed and rebuilt the Greenwood community only to witness its decline in the 1960s. For decades, survivors did not speak of the terror. And on that turning page, uh, we see uh, a family holding up beams for a, a, a building, for the framework of a building that's being built. But what I love is that on that previous page, we have the man with his hands up and the gun pointed at his back. And on the following, we have a man carrying lumber on his shoulder with his hammer in the back pocket and he's looking over his shoulder he's watching his back he's looking behind um i think that 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 imagery is 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 powerful there's a lot here for us to take our time and study and ask questions and and think about where we and our lives now intersect with this horrific event that happened a hundred years ago yeah, and there's actually, if you look at look at that picture um, even more closely, there's an intersection of the of the wood of the lumber and the little boy's hands, and it kind of forms a cross. cross. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I thought you were going to say yeah. the same. Yeah. So, and I, you know, I don't, I don't think anything is, you know, anything that Floyd did in terms of the illustrations is is merely by chance. You know, I think it's every that every move that he makes in in this artwork is is in was intentional. intentional. Yeah, I would agree that nothing nothing yeah. is accidental. Even even inspiration just at, at the hand of the muse is is something that that is moving him and I can't stop but think about gosh, you know, Carol, if we you and I could pour over every page of this book, but whenever I turn back to the start of the book, it's on the second or third spread with those two girls, the one, I assume, sister with her arm around the other, um, making that corn husk doll where it mentions about the residents descended right, right. from black Indians, formerly enslaved people, and from exodusters. The, the tone that that, that is, the tone that that communicates looking into her eyes, we are forced to confront a lot of individuals in this book by by giving us those portraits of individuals close to the reader close to the page where we can study and and, and look at them and see their humanity um, right exactly it's just i mean it's it's that master hand that, that their 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 here. humanity and and in the case of the children the innocence the innocence as i mean well. and, and floyd does this floyd does that on the cover as oh, yeah. well oh yeah um one girl um the oldest girl kind of has her eyes just just slits so you can just barely see her pupils but the girl that's being held in her mother's arms uh the mother's trying to shield the girl but shield the girl's face but, but the little girl can still see what's going on she's you know her you, and we can see her eyes and her eyes kind of challenge us to you know i i dare you to deny this happened yes. you know for, for years this was you know this was, as I said, swept, you know, swept under the rug, uh, and not even it, the the incident wasn't the massacre wasn't even taught in Oklahoma schools until the twenty first century. Wow! So you know that that tells you something. They, you know, this 
this this violence, you know, the violence of racism, you know, has been, you know, has been perpetrated against African Americans, African descendants ever since we got in this country. But when you want to teach it, people have a problem with it, with that. No, children, are, you know, children don't, we don't need to know that. They don't need to know that they're too this or too that. They're too innocent. But my, my contention is that if children were old enough to suffer through the atrocities, if children were old enough to, to have been enslaved and have been put out to work in the fields when they were five or six years old, if children were old enough to have, to have been confronted with, with this violence in Tulsa, you know, when they were in their mother's arms, then children today can learn about it. Absolutely. And it takes, it takes less courage to learn about it than it took to live through it. And I think that not, it, it seems obvious to state that children are ready. Um, but so much of this uh, guilt or hesitation, or I don't know what, uh, that, that stems from parents or teachers who maybe don't know what to say, don't know how to respond, don't know how to prepare. Right. Yeah, I do think it, it's the fear of the que- the inevitable questions yes. that children will ask. And you can almost, I mean, you can predict the questions. First, the first question is, well, why did white people do that to black people? Um, you know, just like when I teach, you know, teach segregation, you know, uh, teach about segregation through my through my books. Kids ask, well, you know, who made that stupid rule? Yep. And then you have to say, well, white people made that stupid rule because they wanted to you know, be on top and have black people stay on the bottom and have, you know, have more money than black people and more opportunities than black people and more education than black people and better homes and, you know, on and on and on. And so it's, it's messy. You know, it's not, it's not a neat conversation, but the questions need to be asked. Children deserve the truth and will demand the truth. And we have to trust them to ask the questions. Right. Because is it, is it, where do you want to land? Do you want to learn, do you want to land keeping them from this and them asking you, why didn't you ever tell me? Or do you want to be in a position where this is going to be messy and I'm going to expose my own ignorances while I share this, but I can learn alongside with you and we can ask questions together and find out together. Yeah, parents, you know, I, I, I can, I, I totally get it. Oh, you yeah. know, parents and parents are very protective of their children. Teachers, you know, have a lot of demands on them in terms of yeah. the curriculum and what they have to teach. So, you know, to, to pull out an incident like this and use it as a teaching moment is extra, but well worth it. You know, well worth the, you know, the, the diversion, the, the, temporary diversion from the, the, the standard curriculum. And, and, it, and, it, and it definitely connects with the curriculum. It's just about, you know, about the choices. I mean, you know more than I do about the choices that teachers uh, can and can't make and, and how they make those choices. Well, I think that teaching itself, if I can affirm, if there's any teachers listening, I think we can affirm that teaching itself is a radical act. And so it behooves all of us to seek justice and seek the humanity of all individuals um, and respect the agency of children to ask these questions and 
you know, to to know that we're teaching looking at the future. And if we don't, right, if we don't right. honor that these that this is our future, then 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 things like this happen again. And, yeah, and teachers yeah. teachers have so much agency, and I oh, have such sure. you know such respect. I, I I truly believe that teachers hold one of the most important jobs in society. I, you know, I give it to teachers and doctors because we want to stay alive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, doctors. Now, let me not say just doctors, but let's say healthcare health workers, sure. healthcare workers, and educators. Let's just use the broad term, educators. It is so important, you know, so much responsibility falls on teachers that, I mean, it, it just, it blows, it blows my mind that teachers continue to shoulder that responsibility, even when they are not paid enough to do so. Correct. We are not and paid. Must, like, know, must, and must buy so much, you know, teachers have, they not only have so much agency, but they, I mean, they have agency about what they bring into their classroom because they have to buy so many of the things out of their own pocket. <laughs> I had a friend who was who taught um, in the classroom for many years, elementary classroom, and she, but she was trained in in PE. That was her specialty, and so she finally got a job in PE. But she had acquired so many things in her classroom that she told her husband. Her husband had to buy a second shed because she said, "I'm not gonna throw. I'm not throwing all my stuff away yeah, yeah. because I might have to go back into the classroom one day. Yeah, you don't know when they're gonna. And I you. don't want to have to buy it again. And then the pandemic but, happened, and we actually saw a lot of specialist teachers, related arts teachers, being put in a position of needing to to pick up other classes, support other classes, general classes. Yep, it's a thing. But yeah, but. Yeah to work in in writing for children and in teaching children in educating children to work in that space of helping to touch the future and to inform and to provide the tools for these children to to understand their world and to walk through it with a sense of agency is such a powerful thing and carol i uh, I'm watching our time. I know we're at the end of our time, but I, I wanted to say to you how grateful I am that your books do that. I can see transparently that you are constantly learning, constantly asking questions, and you uh, live that out um, visibly through the books that you share with your readers and uh, the way that you speak to those readers when you visit schools. And so I'm grateful that I'm grateful that you're in the world, Carol. I'm really grateful oh, that thank you, you do yeah. what you do. Thank you so much. Of course. Uh, I want to close by giving you a chance to speak directly to all of those learners of any age, uh, whether they're grown-up learners or, or children that are listening or that will hear it. I'll close this way. I will see a library full of children tomorrow morning. Is there a message that I can bring to them from you? Yes. Uh, the message is asking questions is more important than knowing the answers. This is Ashley Belote, illustrator of Frankenslime and Valenslime, authored by Joy Keller. This slimy series tells the stories of Victoria Franken, slime scientist extraordinaire who loves to create bold and wonderful slimes in her lab. Her sidekick, Igor the dog, lends a paw when he can. 
Their story begins one dark and stormy night when one of their elaborate experiments goes awry and comes to life. These fun stories are sure to inspire young slime scientists around the world. You can learn more about Frankenslime and Valenslime by visiting www.ashleybelote.com. The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by Matthew Winner in his library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 650 episodes at matthewcwinner.com. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear, care of the Free Music Archive. Want to help out the show? Become a patron at patreon.com slash matthewcwinner, and your support and contributions will directly support and impact his work here. And always, writing a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that's a very good thing indeed. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cozy bonding time. The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.